Ezekiel 35 and 36. Uh, This really has to be broken into two lessons. The details of the prophecy that you may know a little bit, be a little bit more familiar with at the end of chapter 36 is what we'll have to look at next week. I, I will submit to you, I haven't done a lesson like this in a while. And what I mean by that is a lesson that is extraordinarily deep. And so I hope you had a a good nap and you're ready for this because uh, this is truly an amazing text, but I'm going to ask you to follow with me in all of this. And if you want the the slides afterward, I'll be happy to send them to you because there's going to be a flurry. So I'm just giving you the heads up now and the warning about all that as as we get into this lesson. Now, in Ezekiel 34, we saw a picture of Christ as the shepherd, we have God looking at down at his people and saying, the way I'm going to rescue my people from false shepherds is I myself will be a shepherd to the people. God himself will come down and he will lead his flock and care for them. And we haven't left the, the messianic text from Ezekiel 34 all the way to the end of the book. Uh, it is all messianic, and I'm going to present my case for that essentially as we go through that tonight, and I suspect some challenging things along the way. But uh, I think this picture of this inheritance that Ezekiel has a vision of is a beautiful one for us to get our hands and our minds around to understand the kingdom that we presently enjoy as the people of God in Christ. But let's kind of just work with an overview of sorts, and I'm going to have to come back to chapter 35 because I think I can show you a little bit easier what chapter 35 is doing by the details of 36. But let's get a a, a little bit of a scope of what's going on up to this point. Uh, If you even have headers in your Bible, you might notice in Ezekiel 35 at at the beginning there, it says a prophecy against Mount Seir, verse 2 says, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. As you go through chapter 35, Mount Seir is a mountain in Edom. And if you are uncertain of that, you can jump down to verse 15 at the end of that chapter. And it says, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir and all of Edom, all of it. And then they will know that I am the Lord. This whole chapter is a prophecy that stands against the the nation of Edom. Now, this is a curious location for this. We've already seen a prophecy against Edom back in the section of chapters 25 to 32. A long list of different nations were listed and being destroyed there that God was bringing judgment. And I want you to have in your mind for a moment... Why would this be sitting here? This is an unusual location for a prophecy about Seir and Edom when chapter 34 was about God himself coming to shepherd his people. And chapter 36 is going to be all about how God is going to forgive sins and his spirit is going to come and he's going to cause people to walk in his ways and obey his statutes. All new covenant, New Testament imagery. Why is Edom in the middle of that? This is really one of the big questions. Why do we have this section about Edom listed here? In fact, to press that idea even further, as you move into chapter 36, you will notice that God is not done with all of that. He even states in verse 5 of chapter 36, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and all Edom, 
who gave my land to themselves for a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make it pastures, its pastures lands a prey. So here is this declaration that not only is Edom being judged, but all the nations are being judged. And the reason why is because they want God's land. Okay, just hold that strange idea in your mind. They all are trying to take my people's lands. And so I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to judge these nations that tried to do that. And you'll notice even in in verse 7 that here he now makes a declaration. I swear that the nations that are all around you are going to suffer reproach. So here is the statement about judgment is going to come. And then here's what is really unusual about what happens next is that the vast majority of chapter 36 are prophecies that are talking about the land. And if you go back and read chapter 36 this week, I want you to do that and note how the frequency of the land is is being described. And we'll read some of it just to get a feel of it. But you will notice that it says like in verse 8, but you, O mountains of Israel, so notice he is already talking about the mountains of the land. Verse 9, I am for you and I will turn to you. And you might think you would be people, but notice you shall be tilled and sown. He's talking about the land. He's there describing the mountains and the land and all of this land is going to be renovated and changed and restored. And there are blessings that are going to come upon that. Verse 10, I will multiply people on you, the you again, the land, all the house of Israel is going to be on this land. The cities will be inhabited and the waste waste places rebuilt. Verse 11, I will multiply on you. That's the land again, the man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times. And I will do more good to you than ever before. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 12, I will let people walk on you. <laughs> so once you're just getting a sense of, It's just this emphasis of the land, the land, the land, the land. The people are going to live on the land. The land is going to be fruitful. Everybody's going to enjoy it. And I want you to notice something particularly interesting is it says there, like in verse 12, and they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and you shall no longer bereave them of children. And then he continues and he says in verse 13, you devour people, you bereave the nations of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people, no longer bereave the nation of your children. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause nations to stumble, declares the Lord. So I'm wanting you to see that there is this picture of massive blessings that are happening ultimately through through the land now to i here's what i said i will come back to this i just kind of want to hold that all of chapter 35 and the first half of chapter 36 are all about god saying i need to judge edom and all the nations because they all keep trying to take my land and i'm not going to let them have it and now that they destroyed the land i'm going to get them off of there and i'm going to rebuild the land and i'm going to let them come back hold all that right there now Pull forward to the end of chapter 36, because I want you to see that this frame and this theme still keeps coming up. In chapter 36, and notice in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So I just want you to see 
We're really stuck on land. We're really talking about this emphasis about the land that is going to happen. And the section that we're going to see here next, I'm going to quickly go through. Here is my Lord willing promise. I will come back and do verses 25 to 27 next week. These are really important verses, but there was no way to do these two chapters and the importance of those verses all in one shot. But quickly notice That you have in verse 25, God will sprinkle clean water and make the people clean. Verse 26, God will give the people a new heart and a new spirit. Verse 27, God will put his spirit in his people and cause the people to walk in his ways and be careful to keep his rules. But then notice in verse 28, we're back to the land. In verse 28, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and I will lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant so that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So There is this picture of living in the land and there's going to be this abundance and there's not going to be a famine. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. God just made a promise that the land would never lack and would never have famine. And I want you to think about that because we know historically, physically, That didn't happen. You might remember as we talked about in the days of Haggai. Remember God saying, because you have focused on your own homes and have not focused on my temple. He had caused there to be a lack of abundance. That they had sown much and had very little. And God had kept them from enjoying the benefits of the land. And so we can't be talking about when the people return to the land from Babylonian exile. It doesn't work. Nor can it even be talking about the first century in the New Testament. You might remember as you read the book of Acts, there's a famine in Judea. And the saints from around the the Roman Empire are sending and helping the Christians who are in Judea because of the depth of the famine. And yet here is a prophecy where God says, in my land, there will be no more famine and there will always be an abundance and I will always care for my people. So you already get a sense that there must be something bigger that these land prophecies are talking about. It can't just be simply relegated to, and when the people come out of Babylonian exile, they're going to live on the land. The, The promises are bigger than that. They're far more expansive than that. It's about getting nations out of the way, fruitfulness constantly happening, joy and abundance and peace, and the people living in relationship with God all the days of their life as they dwell in the land. I want you to continue looking at that idea as you jump down to, to verse 33 of chapter 36. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say the land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. 
like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So I shall, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Notice the outcome of God's blessings. He says the desolate, this is an interesting one, the desolate land that's been destroyed by the Babylonians and all of this destruction, there's going to be this great reversal and the people are going to note that it's like the Garden of Eden. That's a fascinating picture. Another picture that's given is that it's going to be fortified, it's going to be inhabited, and the people are going to increase like a flock when God brings them back onto the land. Now, here's what I want you to look at carefully in your Bibles in this paragraph when was the time marker given when God says all of these promises would be fulfilled? If you look carefully at verse 33, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. Interesting. So this can't be talking about coming out of Babylonian exile or some other time into that. It has to be pointing to the crucifixion of Christ when salvation is offered, when forgiveness of sins is given. All of these things about the land will finally come to pass. So here's the big question that I have for you that I know you can't say anything, but I hope you're kind of having this in your mind is why? Why the big emphasis on the land? Why is there so much time and so much space given to these prophecies about the land. And I would submit to you that we would certainly say at minimum, there are all kinds of prophecies that are made about how God was going to redeem and restore his people. And that would all begin in Jerusalem. There is certainly an aspect by which we need to have Zion intact because Isaiah all over the place is saying From Zion will go forth the law. From Zion will be the law spreading. And it's going to be the instruction of God. And nations are going to come to Zion. And they're going to be restored and redeemed. Isaiah is speaking about that. So we would certainly have that. But here's another way for me to kind of ask the question. Is God's great goal in all of these prophecies really bound up in this 8,000 square mile space? found between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Is this God's grand concern that in the text, when God says they keep wanting to take my land and I'm not going to let them have those 8,000 square miles, that's my land. Or is there something more? Is there something else that's happening? To ask the question another way, when God made the promises about the land, when he gave those promises to Abraham, Does God only have in mind the original boundary markers of this plot of land between the Mediterranean, between the Jordan River, up to the Euphrates, and down to the river of Egypt? Is that all that was entailed by that, or is God pointing to something more important? I am obviously leaning to you that we have something far bigger in mind that that is going on. And I think the Old Testament tries to show us this, and I don't know that I carefully paid attention to it as I ought to. For example, when you read through the scriptures, you will note that you always have the borders of what was originally promised to Abraham constantly changing. I think one of the most interesting examples of that is you remember that when God gave the promise to Abraham, it was supposed to be between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. But they haven't even got there, and they already take the eastern side of the Jordan River. 
We, we already are outside of the boundary line that was even promised in the first place. And we didn't even get Joshua conquering the land yet. And already we're standing outside. If you grew up in the pews, you recognize a, a, a map like that where you see two and a half tribes are on this side of the, of the Jordan River rather than over on this side. So already we're outside this boundary line of what God was, was even promising. And so when you have the conquest take place, that doesn't match the promises given to Abraham about the borders. And I think what's particularly interesting is Solomon gets the closest to fulfilling the promise. Solomon gets the closest. Solomon, and that's why you have this big extent of that paint going all the way up, that's actually touching the Euphrates River. That's the first time that what was promised to Abraham looks like it's happening. It's touching the Euphrates. It's got the Jordan River. It's got the, the Mediterranean. Oh, well, actually, wait a minute. If you look carefully at the Mediterranean, the Philistines were still there. And you still had Tyre and Sidon and the Phoenicians. So even in the reign of Solomon, you're not quite ever getting exactly what God said was going to happen. So here's my first big point, and then we're going to talk about why in the world any of this matters. Here's the first big point. Those three promises that were made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15, 17, 22, about how he was going to possess the land, that God would make a great nation out of him, and through his offspring, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All of those were only small deposits that none of them were fulfilled until the time of Christ. Okay, so now if you grew up in the pews, that's not what you were ever taught because I wasn't ever taught that either. What I was always taught is that the land and the nation promises were fulfilled, but the offspring, the seed promise had not been fulfilled until Christ comes. But I wanted you to read what we saw here in Ezekiel 36 and 35 where it said when forgiveness sins are given, that's when the land was going to be what God had promised and prophesied. That what you're reading about throughout those scriptures of the Old Testament are showing these small deposits, a movement of God carrying out his, his promises. But none of the three are actually completely fulfilled until the days of Christ. Now, let's look to the New Testament, and I think the New Testament validates this, this very idea. And I think we could look at the Old Testament that would also validate this idea. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So notice he's going to the place of his inheritance. And if you left it right there, you would think, okay, the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, the 8,000 square miles right there. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise as, an, as a, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But notice what it says. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It doesn't say, and Abraham was looking forward to building buildings on that parcel of land that God has promised. Already, Abraham apparently has in mind that there's something far more 
than just that square plot of land sitting there between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. There must be something bigger. He is looking forward to a city who does that has foundations, who is building it with God himself as the architect and founder, rather than what he would build or him living on the land. The writer of Hebrews pushes that even harder in verse 13. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised. If I had more time, I would say, I think that argues my point right there, that none of the three were actually fulfilled. All of these died, not receiving the things promised, not two out of three, none of them. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. All right, well, what land were they seeking? If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. What was the better country? A heavenly one. Not the 8,000 square miles. They were looking forward to a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared them for a city. So already the writer of Hebrews says, you know, the people of faith, they didn't see their inheritance or that land promise as merely a plot of dirt. They were looking forward to a better country. They were looking forward to a heavenly one. They were looking forward to a city that God built that had foundations. And even Jesus confirmed that idea. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit this 8,000 square foot, square mile place. Blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth is the promise that he puts his finger on. And so there is something bigger that is going on with this land promise that Ezekiel has in mind that the New Testament is identifying to say this is far more than what we probably may have had in mind. Now, let's bring this back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want you to notice something interesting about what is pictured here. Ezekiel 36, and go to verse 10. And I will multiply people on you. Remember, the you is this land that keeps talking about the land that's going to happen. I'll multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited, waste places rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast. And notice this phrase. This might sound familiar to you. And they shall multiply and be fruitful. Now, that's a phrase that is an important phrase that comes up in scriptures. You might remember it back in the days of Adam and Eve. What was God's directive to them? I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the original directive is that the kingdom of God is supposed to be the whole earth. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And you might remember when Noah gets off of the ark, the same thing is said to Noah and his sons. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And now here is Ezekiel saying, here's what's going to happen. When we get these this Edom and the, all these nations out of the way, you are going to have the land and the people are going to live on the land and they're going to be fruitful and they're going to multiply and they're going to fill the earth. Just like what was said all the way back at, at the very beginning. So I want us just to consider that what we are seeing is that this inheritance was always something bigger. There was always something more than just Canaan. 
just that little area that is marked off there between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And what God is trying to show us is this inheritance that God had made for his people could not be fulfilled until the shepherd came, which is what the prior chapter was about. All of chapter 34 is, I need to send my shepherd. I myself will come and I will lead them and I will tend to them and I will feed them and I will care for them. And as he does that, you are getting this imagery that what God is going to do is essentially give the inheritance, but the inheritance is not Canaan. The inheritance has always been the whole creation, the whole idea that God's kingdom rules over heaven and earth. Jesus even says that as he raises from the dead and tells his disciples that all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. I've I've got all of creation. I now rule over all of it. That was the original directive. And notice the writer of Hebrews confirms this. Hebrews 9 verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, don't jump ahead because I've used this passage so many times for the rest of what this says in these two chapters, in, in these two verses, which is, you know, we can't have a new covenant until there's the death of the covenant maker or the one who makes that will. But notice what he says right here. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Why? That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And I'd say, well, where was the internal inheritance ever promised? All of those land promises were what those that was talking about. That's what Abraham says he was looking forward to. That's what the writer of Hebrews says all the people of faith were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the heavenly country, a better country. They weren't looking forward to a plot of land. They were looking to an eternal inheritance. But notice Christ had to come. He is this mediator of a new covenant so that those of us who are called can now receive that promised eternal inheritance inheritance. All right. Now, I told you to hold on to something way back there at the very beginning. So let's remember that. Why all this Edom stuff? Right? Chapter 35, Edom, 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 Edom. You know, we're going to get Edom. Why Edom right here? Why are we talking about them, these perennial enemy of God, God's people? And why is there such an emphasis on this land inheritance in this whole section? Brent, why don't you just preach on verses you know, a chapter in chapter 36 and, you know, verses 31 and 32 is be so much easier. We can talk about having a new heart and a new spirit. That's what I thought you were going to do tonight. And you've messed it all up. Why all of this information? Because I want you to note that what God has always been proclaiming is that his kingdom has to always rise up and come up against all of his enemies and all of God's people's enemies. In fact, if you're on Sunday morning with us in our Revelation study at 930, that's exactly what you're seeing is the people of God are saying, God, you need to do something because we were killed for the cause of Christ. God, are you going to act? 
And you're seeing God's answer. Yes, I will deal with the enemies. I will deal with those who have come against you. Why deal with Edom? Because they have been enemies of God and God's people. Why the rest of the nations? Because they are coming against God and coming against his people. So why is this so important? Why must God rise up and destroy every nation that stands against him? Because God has always said that his kingdom rules all creation. Let me give you a couple of these that you know. Psalm 2. I will declare the Lord's decree. Here is the Messiah speaking. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, so here's Christ saying this. Here's what he told me. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Now listen to what this is promised to him. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, good thing he clarifies to help us. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. The whole earth is what has always been promised. Heaven and earth being the picture of the complete rule of Christ. The whole earth is the inheritance that is given to him that he now rules from heaven over all creation, shattering his enemies with an iron scepter. Now, we're going to bring this to a conclusion here in just a moment, but I want you to listen to what these New Testament authors say. And then I'm just going to make one very simple point, and then you can go, okay, I can breathe again. I know this is is deep. Listen to what Peter says. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Here is this picture of this inheritance that God has because he rules over heaven and earth. And he's giving this image of, I've reserved this for you. You are a part of this. Or remember when we were in Revelation 5 and we were like, and we will reign with him and we were all scratching our heads. This is an interesting image. And here's Ezekiel talking about that. And here is Peter talking about that. Second Peter one, verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have the Apostle Paul in his very last letter. Second Timothy four, verse 18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have been given something. And let us, therefore, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire. What I want us to have a a simple picture of is that there is this image in Ezekiel that is found throughout the scriptures that says, as the people of God, we belong to a kingdom. And since Christ has risen from the dead, he has authority over heaven and earth. He rules over all things and we're a part of that. 
And our great hope, he says, you are receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are a part of this heavenly country. You are a part of this great rule of Christ so that we can have hope and confidence of a God who stands for us. Now, if you're standing in Ezekiel's day, here they are, and they're dealing with all the nations, and they're suffering, and they're going through all these problems, and God comes along and says, guess what? I'm going to deal with your enemies. I'm going to deal with these nations. I'm going to deal with all the people who stand against you. I'm going to judge them and wipe them out. Any, any Babylonians still around today? God did exactly as he said. And you come into the first century and you have the Jewish people or the persecutors who have been studying the book of Revelation. And God says, I'm going to deal with them. And then the Roman Empire arises and they're persecuting the people of God. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to deal with them. And we can look at history and go, they did. Everyone who has ever come up against God's people, if it be Assyria, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks or the Romans, anybody that ever comes up against the people of God, God always deals with them. And that's the idea of this land promise is God rules over heaven and earth and you belong to that kingdom and you have nothing to fear because you know that God will deal with all enemies. He will deal with all evil. He will deal with all nations. He will deal with everything that is false and wicked and he will ultimately put them under his feet because God said to his son, You will possess the nations and you will have as a possession the ends of the earth. And for us as God's people, then it's not just merely, I can't wait to get out of here and go to heaven. Okay, that's going to be great. But the knowledge that God rules now and the land is the whole earth. And he says, whoever tries to come up against you or who tries to take my inheritance, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to judge them. We have a radical inheritance that has been pictured to us that God who rules over all creation, we belong to him. And therefore, why the writer of Hebrews can say, this is the reason we can have reverence and awe before God, why we can offer him acceptable worship. Or let me throw into a blunder a a medley of pictures that the New Testament says about who we are. Because we know we have this inheritance, we are able to go out and be representatives of Christ's kingdom, ambassadors in his service, shining as lights in the darkness, telling the world about our shepherd King Jesus, who rules over heaven and earth, and gives blessings to all who will join this wonderful kingdom that he has established. Ezekiel is visualizing an inheritance for the people of God when Christ comes. And so I hope this will give you a new lens that when you read these promises about land, don't just go, oh, you know, Israel, exile, moving right along. He's promising the world to us. He's promising all creation to us. He's saying your inheritance is everything God has ever made. And that is a stunning thought to think that we are children in the kingdom of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Our heavenly father, Lord, what an amazing prophecy you have given through your servant Ezekiel. Words that are just hard for us to begin to understand. 
as you lay out pictures of you blessing your people and giving your people an amazing inheritance, one that we cannot even begin to understand. It is hard for us, Lord, to wrap our minds around the idea that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that rules over heaven and earth, that destroys all enemies, that puts everything under your feet. And Lord, I I pray that you would help us have a, a, a sight and eyes to see the kingdom that we belong to. Lord, we can become so discouraged as we look around and we see wickedness that seems to be on the rise, where we live in a culture that seems to reject you, that we live in a nation that's turned its back on you, that we see the world turn its back on you, and it can cause us to be discouraged. God, please give us comfort and encourage our hearts and hold us up in that moment. And help us to see that there is no evil that you will not deal with. There is no wickedness that goes unseen by you. And that you will deal with every false act. You will be just toward every wicked nation. And you will do what is right as you subjugate the nations and the whole world under your feet. God, help us to see the glorious kingdom that we belong to. And never turn our back on it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to a glorious kingdom, a wonderful promise that's been given to us to enjoy. That there is so much that awaits us. This idea of reigning with Christ for all eternity. We can't even get our minds around it. And I think God knew that. And so all he could do was give us pictures like, well, it's going to be blessings. And it's going to be an overflowing and there won't be a famine and it's going to be good. And he's just trying to help us see what a wonderful picture it will be to spend eternity with God. We want you to enjoy that with him. Turn away from your sins and come to him tonight with all of your heart. If you, could, if you want to come, we can help you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?